Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who knows that we do not need the wonders of biotech. Remember, biotech is owned by the very, very, very few. Um, We don't need those wonders. We don't need to make salmon grow twice as fast in half the time to feed all humans. What we need is a transformation of our relationship with the planet, our relationship with Mother Earth. You know, GMOs promise to sustainably sustainably feed um, all humans on the planet. And, And yet, after a few decades of this experiment, what's the result of our dominant food systems? More than 40% of insect species are declining, and a third are endangered. There is a soil depletion crisis, a climate crisis, a pandemic, but many are working for a saner path. Um, And I encourage people to check out um, ecofarm.org, that's eco, E-C-O, dash farm.org, and listen to the wonderful keynote about farming as medicine. It, It just puts everything in such a beautiful historic context. So, I mean, if GMOs are not the way to go, what to do? How about urban agriculture, edible boulevards, supporting land acquisition for BIPOC farmers? And these are the topics of today's show. And we're going to be very pleased to be joined by Melissa Trent with Pillsbury United Communities, Michelle Shaw with Edible Boulevard Coordinator, Michael Cheney with Product Sweetie Pie, Ed McDonald, former uh, director of the Council on Black Minnesotans, and Philip um, with uh, Sustainable Forestry Coordinator for the Minneapolis Park and Rec Board. So we have quite a full show, and we're starting with Melissa. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Melissa with Pillsbury uh, United Communities. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about um, your background and what you do. Sure. Um, So I'm a resident of Northeast Minneapolis. I've been gardening, farming, and a youth coordinator in Minneapolis for about six years now. Um, So my current position, I'm an urban farm coordinator for Pillsbury United Communities. Uh, I coordinate four farms that are really focused on organic food production, and we work alongside youth to help them develop skills to appreciate healthy food and give them tools to grow it themselves. And I know one topic you wanted to bring up was childhood nutrition. Yeah. um, So in my undergrad at the University of Minnesota, I studied food systems. It was a really new degree at that time, and I think it's still forming based on, like, public demand. Um, But just, like, growing up as a young person, I lived both in the urban community and in rural community. And um, it wasn't until I moved from the east side of St. Paul to a small farm in North Branch that I realized, like, where a tomato came from. Mm -hmm. So... Just in my experience, I really started to work with youth and notice that it's a really common trend they, that most youth don't know where their food comes from in an urban environment. And uh, we have, like, really incredible obesity rates um, among youth in, in Minneapolis. And I think that's, like, part of a systemic issue. And um, the way we measure that is a bit antiquated. But... Looking at it from a holistic perspective, youth are lacking essential nutrients, and a lot of that has to do with the access they have to healthy, affordable food, but also, like, the education and communal aspect around food. 
Right. And um, I know there's some a, a lot of really good research out there. And we, we know people don't eat enough fruits and vegetables. And if fruits and vegetables were more accessible, people would be more healthy. Um, and um, so one of the ways to help people eat fruits and vegetables is to help them show how to grow <laughs> fruits and vegetables. And by Absolutely. that simple act, um, it encourages, it sort of opens, um, it opens the, it, it opens. So tell, tell, so you've been working with youth and growing vegetables. So what kind of experiences have you observed? Yeah, so I worked with youth from like ages six all the way to 20. And um I noticed that even if there's a resistance or a disinterest in the beginning, once young people have access to grow their own food and could sample new fruits and vegetables in a fun environment, they just really take on like this whole new perspective and they, they kind of grow their minds and like their interests around food grow within the garden, really. Um, and there's actually a statistic out there. I don't have the exact numbers right now, but the more young people have access to to like visually see that growth and find where their food comes from, the more interested and willing they are in developing healthy food habits at a young age. And do you think, uh, especially in these times that seem so stressful, um, can gardening um, be uh, for mental health? Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of research around you know, how interacting with the soil, the soil actually produces like a microbe or a pheromone that increases um, like our positivity, it affects our mood. And that's just like one little piece of evidence that proves it. But having access to beautiful outdoor spaces and being able to work with your hands, like as a young person can definitely promote mental health. What about food sovereignty issues? The idea of being able to... Um, you know, um, grow our own food and not be dependent on, on, you know, large organizations to buy food, but having that freedom. Yeah, I think that's um, something that a lot of organizations and people are fighting for in Minneapolis and across the United States right now. I mean, you know, the Black Panther movement was trying to feed their youth healthy food. Like Fannie Lou Hamer was trying to um, fight for food rights and food access. Um, and, you know, food sovereignty, like, before the Eurocentric mindset came here, um, you know, Native American folks were sustaining themselves off the land for thousands of years. Um, and I think we need to, like, reincorporate those visions and have access to land in order to grow our resilience and um, improve our, our access to healthy foods. I think it inspires a lot of resilience. Um, and and pride in your community and connection with the land. Yeah, that connection is so important. And you know, in the next segment, we're going to be talking about edible boulevards. And I just I love that concept of of bringing out the food in in, in the public spaces. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, having worked in the community north, south side, and St. Paul. Um, I've worked with, like, a ton of BIPOC gardeners and farmers and, and youth, and um, constantly people are referencing how frustrated they are that they can't grow um, a perennial or a fruit on their boulevards. And there's a lot of gray area around what is legal. Um, so I think, you know, I haven't even found the law or the policy that says that you can't, but I know it exists. 
So I think that we need to really do some work to change whatever law or policy that is and to name it mm-hmm. and to work as a community with, with these folks that are so interested um, to change that so that we can have a more resilient uh, food community. Right, because I mean, it, the, what, what would be the benefits of um, of growing um, food on our boulevard? Oh, so many. <laughs> I mean, for one, you have beautification, right? Um, all fruit trees flower before they bloom, so you've got like beautiful flowers throughout the season. For two, those poll- um, those flowers are attracting pollinators, um, which, as you've seen nationally, have been really neglected and are declining. So you're supporting them as well. Yeah. Um, and then having access to fresh fruit, you know, maybe a youth in south or north Minneapolis, like, does hasn't seen a plum before, but suddenly you have a plum tree on the boulevard, and they ask their parent or friend what it is, and they realize it's edible, and, um, you know, that just increases access. And, and inspiration of, like, I can grow food here on this two-by-ten-foot plot. Wow, maybe I don't have to live poorly or, like, Maybe I can grow my own food and save some money for my education. Yeah, or maybe um, maybe we can help um, small entrepreneurs doing, um, you know, by foraging. I know there's some companies that have actually started businesses on foraging. Um, and, you know, just, yeah, but, but those pollinators, again, that statistics, you know, that 40, 40% of insect species are declining and a third are endangered. And so, you know, throwing pesticides and small grass for for a particular aesthetic is just not sane. Absolutely. And I also want to mention that, you know, a lot of Native populations have foraged throughout history. So there are a lot of fruits that aren't available on the market because they grow wild. Mm -hmm. Um, And those are fruits that we have the potential to grow here in our city. And while they're providing food to, like, the indigenous community and everyone, um, they're also providing other environmental benefits, like um, their root systems improve the soil and the soil microbes. Um, You know, they preserve soil from degradation. And then those perennial systems also increase water water infiltration, so they can assist with um, climate change. Right. It's, there's so many benefits. Um, I heard this expression, and I love it. It's called hypersanity. And it's like, yeah, that's what we need, hypersanity. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so, Melissa, with Pillsbury United Communities, uh, anything else you'd like to share? I mean, how can people connect with you? Or um, what's your vision of Food Freedom Radio? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they can connect with me. So I'm an urban farmer with Pillsbury United Communities. If you'd like to partner on any capacity or just have a chat, my email is melissa t at pillsburyunited.org. And I would just ask you to have a conversation with your friends, family, and local um, legislators to try to improve food access in our city in any way you can. Yeah, and the urban agriculture movement. What do you see uh, what, what do you see as food freedom? I see food freedom as having um, sovereignty over our food, so access to land for all folks to grow food in any way that they can. Well, I thank you so much, Melissa Trent with Pillsbury United Communities. We'll be back with Michelle Shaw um, uh, with the Edible Boulevards Coordinator. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hetlund, and on today's show, we're talking about urban agriculture, edible boulevards, and supporting land acquisition for BIPOC farmers. Joining us right now is Michelle Shaw. She's the Edible Boulevards Coordinator. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Michelle. Thanks. Hi, Laura. Hi. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, um, I am a teacher. Uh, that's what I've been educated to do, I guess. So it's kind of natural that I bring this into a uh, topic that I'm just starting to learn more about over the last uh, couple of years here. So um, I do a lot of advocacy in areas uh, with the pipeline, line three, um, trying to do some advocacy for our Mississippi River and uh, also now with food. So that's what brings me here. That's what, okay, so tell us about um, how did Edible Boulevards um, uh, get started? You, you wanted to plant some fruit trees, and then you found out it was illegal to plant fruit trees in the boulevard? Uh, well, so Edible Boulevards actually started um, back when I saw from Paris to Pittsburgh back in 2019. Um, I was inspired by something happening down in Orlando where they were growing fresh produce. Um, pretty much anywhere they could find land. And I saw some of the boulevards in front of people's homes being used there to grow fruits and vegetables. And so it was like, why can't we do that here to help with our food security? Um, and at that time, too, uh, one of the one of the studies had just been put out as far as uh, people making short trips to the store being something that was causing a lot of carbon emissions. And so that also seemed to be, you know, if we could have food right outside our door on our boulevards, that would also decrease our carbon emission output. And so that's what started or, you know, started to drive edible boulevards. And then I found out that we weren't uh, really supposed to be allowed to grow food on our boulevards. And I partnered up with Councilmember Wright, and we created a city pilot in our green zone and our neighboring neighborhoods to the green zone areas. And so the, the fruit trees evolved out of that. So it started with the, um, the boulevard, edible boulevard program. So tell us a little bit about this pilot program then. How is that working? How many trees have you planted? And can people go look at these trees? So we don't have any trees planted. So this is all the boulevard program, Edible Boulevards, is all about planting food in the ground. Mm -hmm. And so um, we have right now uh, two neighborhoods that are participating. Um, This was in the past year. So we had our first year last year. And it was East Phillips and on the south side and then Jordan on the north side. And what we did was partner with um, an urban egg group on each side. And so Little Earth was on the south side, Little Earth Farm, sorry, on the south side and Growing North Minneapolis on the north side. And we paid them to go in and teach the people who are participating in this, the families or individuals at their homes, uh, taught them how to either build an in-ground garden or um, build a raised bed garden. Um, 
But before that, we made sure that we did soil testing to make sure that it was uh, safe to build things there, or not safe to build, mm-hmm. but yeah. safe to, um, you know, get things in the ground. So that's that's where that started. And then from there, when I was talking with participants of Edible Boulevards, we were like, hey, it'd be cool if we could use the other side of the boulevard that they weren't using for that garden, if we could put a fruit tree there. And we didn't realize that we weren't allowed to do that at that time. And so, you know, we were just thinking ahead to this year and how much, how many more people we could feed by having a fruit tree on the boulevard next to uh, the gardens that we're feeding people. And so then where is the policy at right now? And we're later on we'll be talking with the Minneapolis Parks uh, about, about this as well. But where is the current policy stance on planting fruit trees in the boulevards? So right now we're not allowed to do that, even though it's my understanding that there are two different fruit trees that are being planted uh, on boulevards, so ginkgo and hackberry. Um but anything else, we're, we're not allowed to, you know, apply for a permit or anything to put in, let's say, service berry or plum or pear or crab apple. Um, and over in St. Paul, there, um, there is a permit application process. So, of course, that, that doesn't mean I'm sure that there are reasons why they deny permits. Um, but they do actually have a permit application process. They do have an approved tree list Mm -hmm. that you can look at and go to their forestry website and see. Um, So crab apples, service berries, I know those are two of the trees that they have that they can uh, grow on their boulevards there. So what trees would you like to see grown on the boulevards? Well, so one of the concerns I know that people have, and, you know, I've talked with your guests that's coming today, is that there, um, the trees, fruit trees can be a mess. You know, it can go onto people's property, neighbors' properties. And so I've been looking for trees that are smaller. Those are the St. Paul trees. You know, they look for trees that are smaller too and don't have a wide fruit drop. Uh, so some of the things that I've been finding are similar to like the service berries, um, crab apple trees that are large enough to, you know, have a good nutritious bearing fruit, um, but also not large enough where it's, you know, going to be a huge mess. Um, Also, there's some hazelnuts that are small enough that could be really nutritious for our community. There are, you know, there are a number of different things, but you have to keep in mind there are also a number of different factors. For example, whether or not you have to, um, what, what's the word that I'm thinking of? I'm, I'm just recently getting into learning about all of this. Yeah. Like, the last couple of weeks has been a huge curve because I'm not a tree person. Um, so I'm just learning about it. But uh, like the cross-pollinating, that's what I was thinking of. Mm-hmm. So some species you have to have that cross-pollinating so apparently like some cherry we would need to have you know maybe the parks planting more cherry so that I could have one cherry in my yard and not have to rely on a second cherry in my own yard Um, there are pests 
and, you know, Disney. Yeah, everything gets very complicated, but that's how life is. Life is complicated. It just is. But there's been some great energy. So a lot of people are coming forward to try to figure out how to make edible boulevards, right? It is amazing. I have, since Friday, when I sent out a first email to one group that I'm a part of, I have been either responding on email or on the phone, um, you know, for the last six days. So, you know, writing with people from university and different colleges, uh, different nonprofits, just a lot of people in the community who have different expertise. And so we're going we're to have to end already. So, but um, um, ah. Michelle, people want to know they can reach out to you. So, Michelle, give us your email address if people want to contact you. Mississippi Rivers, plural, our O-U-R relative at gmail.com. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and we're talking today about urban agriculture, edible boulevards, and supporting land acquisition for BIPOC farmers. And with us right now is uh, Michael Cheney with Project Sweetie Pie. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. Well, it's been too long, Laura. I kind of miss you since uh, you COVID. Know, I do miss you, and I also, even having you here, I miss not being able to do it in person because it's just so different. I, I loved having a large group of people in studio, and now we're all on the phone, and it feels kind of complicated. But I wanted to first just touch base because you've also been working on this idea of edible boulevards. So tell us a little bit about your involvement um, in that. Well, again, you know, uh, 10 years ago, we uh, decided that North Minneapolis was going green. And so we wanted to use the urban farm movement, local food production, as kind of the energy to help shape the future. And so through that, we started in 2010, starting to build out that agenda with uh, uh, Michelle Shaw, Tiny Field, Spark Y, one of the initiatives that we're working on now is called In Full Bloom and pushing the city to allow the growing of fruit trees and etc. on the boulevards as a, a device to really be able to feed the community. And so we're actually building North Minneapolis's first food force. It's going to be a 2210 Emerson. Uh, it's called the Celestial Garden, a uh, gathering place for God's grace. And the initiative is called Shared Fruit. So we're bringing all of our food champions and kind of this will be our showroom, growing all kinds of models of uh, food uh, systems and partners, strategic partners, all in one central uh, place so that we can demonstrate unity in the community and we can move forward to uh, really give people uh, uh, direct access to food. And what does this mean on a on a on a on a historical spiritual um, level? What are we talking about well, here? Well, we're talking. You know, uh, fifteen years ago, before the uh, we could, would have been arrested, stopped. <laughs> you know, it was forbidden for people to grow food in urban communities. Uh, and like I said, in 2010, we were just on the turning point where finally they were allowing people to grow. 
uh, food in, uh, on empty parking lots that you know could be acquired from the city. There still is legislation or policy on the book that makes it so you can't put fruit trees on boulevards. And we want to build a greener community, uh, block by block, house by house, uh, boulevard by boulevard, so that we actually become, uh, uh, for the nation, kind of a model of going green, operationalizing of the Green New Deal. And so that's why I was really excited to get involved. Uh, Mr. McDonald, who is going to be one of your guests, uh, we actually went to the state because we weren't getting the kind of financial support, moral support um, uh, from the city, from the county. So we had to actually, go, if we wanted to be sustainable and keep this vision alive, we had to go to a higher court. And so uh, we moved to change legislation. That's what this whole thing about uh, fruit trees on boulevards is. It is now forbidden. And that's just another example of institutional racism, how policies on the books have really been daunting and have kept our community hungry and impoverished. And so this whole effort, you know, uh, people ask me if I'm an urban farmer. I tell them, yes, I do that, but I'm an egg patriot. I'm using legislation and you, uh, to really make change, transformative change, and break down some of the systems that have kept us oppressed, marginalized, and broke. Uh, Michael Cheney, it's wonderful to talk to you again. Project Sweetie Pie, as soon as we can be back in studio, I, I'm going to call you and we can be in studio and have another conversation. So thank you for joining us. Um, and now, Ed McDonald, welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you. I'm uh, glad to be here. Yeah. And so you're with Minnesota Equal Opportunity Partnership. That is correct, yes. So talk to us a little bit about House File 874. Yeah, this uh, historic legislation um, does a couple things, actually two things. It targets uh, about $435 million in state appropriations statewide in African-American, African immigrant communities to uh, build and expand their capacity to address uh, disparities, which were primarily created by the poor administration and enforcement of our primary equal opportunity laws, and now have been made worse by the pandemic. It also then invests uh, 22 million to correct that poor administration and enforcement of our primary equal opportunity laws. And those laws are affirmative action, contract procurement, and human rights enforcement, uh, which, uh, if not administered right, is what generates the systemic racism, racial injustice, and uh, creates the socioeconomic disparities that exist in our community. One of the um, horrific tragedies of COVID um, is that lifespans have actually decreased. Um, but for white people, um, lifespans have decreased by 0.8, and whereas for black people, lifespans have decreased on average by two years. Um, and so those inequities are um, are wrong, I guess. I mean, I mean, so can the urban food movement and helping BIPOC farmers um, gain land access help um, people live longer? I believe so. I mean, uh, anytime you uh, can infuse your body with uh, healthy, fresh food and um, 
not live amongst the food deserts that exist in a lot of our urban centers. And, um, and you know, we're trying to address that. You know, you talked to Michael earlier and we're using a lot of innovative ways to get fresh food to people. The Boulevard Initiative is, is one of those things. Going to the legislature a number of years ago and uh, being the, for the first time in, in this country uh, and in this state, being a leader in writing in urban agriculture as a fundable mechanism under our Department of Agriculture uh, funding programs, um, we're able to uh, work with you know, uh, legislative leaders like Karen Clark to, to make that happen. Um, it's been operational for about three or four years now. It has helped to expand the urban agriculture movement. Uh, obviously, they never put enough money there. And this bill, House File 784, uh, would add roughly $10 million to that pool of money, which I believe right now is under a million dollars that's available to support urban agriculture. So how would the money be used? Uh, it would be, it would fund uh, initiative grants that would be provided to uh, uh, folks in the African-American community that are engaged in urban agriculture initiatives um, to uh, help them address uh, issues of fresh food access and food deserts in, in those communities. So uh, it's, it's an expansion more targeted toward a community that's uh, probably in the greatest need, even though the need is, is becoming uh, broad and wide for everyone. Um, the pandemic in some ways is causing that, but for our community, uh, the impact of the pandemic is probably something that uh, persisted before the pandemic. So right, I'm not right. sure what you call it, right now with us being in the middle of the pandemic but i think people see where you know the kind citizens of the state of minnesota are bringing in food and uh many of those areas um where uh projects like michael's project sweetie pie was not able to do its work as well as it could last summer and um and then you know the unrest in the streets because of you know, people just sort of tired of systemic racism and its impact. Um, you know, the quality of life and health in this pandemic um, coming in. I mean, one of the things that uh, we are concerned about is the long-term effects, not only on the disproportionate number of people in the African-American community that died from the pandemic, pandemic and continue to die, but the health uh, impact of of uh, having uh, uh, gotten COVID-19 and survived and what we're learning about the long-term health consequences of, of surviving a COVID-19 uh, virus. So um, this proposal also calls for investing money around the state to establish African-American um, uh, uh, health centers um, there are places in greater Minnesota that don't have that option available to the African-American community. We do have a couple of those centers here in um, the, the metro area, but they can also use resources to expand their services. Uh, it's a comprehensive investment in our community that really get at the socioeconomic disparities that most impact 
our community. And it's that way because equal opportunity has uh, been minimal in uh, the state of Minnesota. And that's particularly disturbing when you think about Minnesota's progressive history and that, you know, this was a state in the formation uh, of statehood that um, refused um, uh, to participate in the Futures of Slave Act. Uh, it's the state that produced Walter Mondale and Hubert Humphrey, who led the way in instituting federal laws that outlawed Jim Crow uh, system in this country. It also is a state that educated Roy Wilkins, who led the NACP during the Civil Rights Movement. And we arguably have the most progressive Bill of Rights in our Constitution, um, the most progressive human rights statute, most of uh, um, uh, uh, forward-thinking affirmative action program, as well as uh, contract procurement laws. But for some reason, the last 30 years, the administration of those equal access and opportunity laws and enforcement have been hugely deficient. And that's just not me saying that. That's mm -hmm. a, a, that is the report we get from all of the state-sponsored quantitative so, studies that so, take a look at those systems. So we have only about a minute um, left. And I know in previous shows, Michael Cheney and I have talked about you know, the founders of Minneapolis did such a fantastic job of creating parks. We were a real leader in that. And so connect this with this urban agriculture and edible foods. How does urban agriculture and edible foods help with inequities? Well, it, 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 it helps to eliminate um, fresh food access. Um, uh, one of the, the beautiful things about the African-American community that farming is in our DNA. I mean, it's no secret that much of the labor into building the agriculture economy in this country was born on the back of African-American people. Uh, those skills, though the ability to do so, the innovation in that area is a part of our DNA. So if land is available, uh, land access, as Mike talked about before, is available, we believe that uh, innovation um, would be forthcoming. Innovation and equity and a kind, gentle world for all that works with pollinators and supports the soil and better air quality and better mental health. Thank you so much. Ed McDonald with Minnesota Equal Opportunity Partnership. We'll be right back on Food Freedom Radio. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who would love to see edible food all around the Twin Cities. And um, so that's been our topic of today's show. We've been talking about urban agriculture, edible boulevards, and supporting land acquisition for BIPOC farmers. Uh, joining us right now is Philip Patyandi. He is the Sustainable Forestry Coordinator for the Minneapolis Park and Recreation Board. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Philip. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on and for uh, thinking about and, and talking about the urban forest today. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, just give us a little background. And when it gets to the boulevards in the cities, um, how is that? Who, who's who's who? Which organization, the Park Board of the Minneapolis City of Minneapolis controls the boulevards? Well, so the 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 park and record, the Minneapolis Park and Recreation Board, the department I'm in, the forestry department, uh, maintains and cares for all the public trees in Minneapolis. So that includes the trees along the streets in, in the boulevards and also all the park trees. 
Okay, and we know that um, tree uh, tree canopy is essential in so many ways. Why is tree canopy important? Oh, and, and some of your other guests earlier talked about this too. Like th- when we think about things like asthma rates and crime, um, you know, trees answer so many of these challenging questions that our, our communities our community is up against. You know, um, trees provide social benefits, uh, health benefits, financial benefits, climate justice related benefits. I mean, just to kind of list a few of those um you know trees trees reduce air pollution some uh, someone was talking about asthma earlier um, improved air quality uh, urban urban cooling noise mitigation water runoff control aesthetic appreciation increased housing value uh, reduced energy use reduce crime uh, improve public health improve school outcomes uh, enhance mental health and all those benefits are directly linked to the amount of leaf area on a tree and so one of our main or probably our our main priority is is increasing the amount of tree canopy within our realm of the public urban forest and by having the largest possible at maturity trees um, that we're able to grow so we can provide as many benefits as possible for people across uh, Minneapolis um, whether whether people are thinking about it or not it's it's things that I think really serve uh, the people who enjoy our city. So right now, is it counter to policy to plant uh, apple trees, pear tree, plum trees, blueberries, hazelnuts, chestnuts um, along the boulevard? Is that within the policy framework? Well, so so thinking about those canopy-related benefits, um, we're trying to maximize those benefits, especially in the street tree population. And so... So having those smaller, most of those trees that you listed are smaller grown trees, um, and and they and they come with uh, additional challenges. Some of them, mm-hmm. um, especially when we think about some of some of the fruit. And so when so we we have planted hundreds of fruit trees in our parks, and we would love to have more and more people uh, connected with those with our fruit trees uh, in our parks, and and to help foster those trees. And, and that's where we'd love to just, just grow, grow our fruit tree program. Well, and I, I, I grew up in Minneapolis, and I remember how devastating, how devastating it was with the Dutch elm disease and when we lost oh, yeah. a bunch of that, that canopy and how important that canopy is. And, and yet, I mean, I love this idea of trying to think, um, you know, to like trying to bring back the American chestnut. And so the American chestnut is, is a very tall canopy tree that also produces fruit. Uh, um, nuts. So, um, what type of um, you know what in, in um, so what type of exploration is going on as to about how how could we plant uh, food and uh, fruit and nut producing trees in our boulevard? What, well, so so if we think about the American chestnut and 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 there's a couple different types of chestnuts out there and hybrids and stuff. I mean, those are we're trying those out in our park population. Thinking of the size of some of the the fruit, um, the nut in this case, um, similar to like a walnut. Um, at some point, um, it's just having that above our, where we are walking and where cars are, um, is, is cumbersome. And we don't want to be, you know, mitigating the, the problem of, you know, large nuts, uh, hitting a car. So thinking of that chestnut. So, so yeah, chestnuts, if, if we can get them to, to grow here, uh, would be great in, in our park settings. Um, and 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 to have that nut the nuts from it and and to pro- provide all the great benefits the trees provide. 
And what about um, adding like the box gardens to the boulevard? Is that is that possible, or is that? I mean, that was the sample program that Edible Boulevards worked on. Um, yeah, I, I, the, I think the box gardens. Uh, I, I, you know, I, it's a challenge because both both our tree resource that serves everyone and those gardens are both going to want as much sun as possible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that gets into a, a little bit of a, a, you know, they're both competing for that same sunlight. Um, but, uh, you know, it seems those both seem reasonable, I suppose. Um, it doesn't, uh, you know, as long as I would caution from, you know, people digging very deep near a tree as they establish those gardens to to not, you know, uh, uh, you know inter- hurt the, the root structure of, of existing trees that may be in those areas. Well, and you also don't want a lot of effort to go into planting trees and then no effort going into watering the trees or caring for the trees. So, um, but what other type, um, so, I mean, it's, it, it is something that's taken a process. So are there, um, and, and so t- tell us again about what the park department, uh, what Minneapolis have parks have done about growing food in the park. That, that's been kind of moving forward. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the urban ag plan has moved forward, and part of that was changing the ordinance related to fruit trees. And so, you know, um, fruit trees are, are excellent, and it's, they're just such a great way, you know, thinking of our uh, of, of citizens' groups um, fostering fruit trees. It's just a, a wonderful way to bring people together in community and, and for people to connect with each other and with their trees and with, with, uh, and with uh, the parks. And at the same time, you know, at the end of the process, you know, maybe you get some some fruit um, from it. And yeah. so, so we've been planting fruit trees in our park since since 2011. Um, there's also, and I, I'm not able to speak in detail about it, but there's there's also uh, garden plots being established in in our park system as well. Um, but uh, but for fruit trees, they're they're out there. There's not there's nut trees uh, across our park system as well um, that people are welcome to to pick from. And so that was part of that urban agriculture plan uh, change was, was to make it uh, very evident that, you know, you can, in, in our parks, you can pick apples, crab apples, hickories, pears, service berries, apricots, cherries, ginkgos, filberts, mulberries, pine nuts, peaches, plums, walnuts, um, all from, from park trees that are there to serve everyone. Cool, cool. And then, and so, um, um, and then maybe someday just what happened to the parks would also move towards the, um, um, the boulevards as long as it's in the right place and you're, you know, you're not, um, you're, you know, being holistic about it or thinking about all the complicating factors that can pop up. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I'd, I'd rather we were uh, emphasizing our, our parks for some of the larger fruit tree production initiatives you know there are there, there are certain trees that that have edible parts that are in the street tree population already that don't have um some of the some of the challenges so you know service berry is one that comes up often and yeah there are there are thousands of of service berries in our in our street tree population. and thousands of service um, berries means hundreds of thousands of happy birds so <laughs> so this is this is to be continued this is a conversation um and uh, i really appreciate your time uh philip Pat Yandi with the uh, Sustainable Forestry Coordinator for the Minneapolis Parks and Rec. And uh, thank you also to uh, Michelle Shaw, Melissa Trent, Michael Cheney, and Ed McDonald. And thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio.